it's amazing how many questions kids ask. I know I don't need to tell that to the to parents or those that are hang out with kids. You're always being asked lots and lots of questions about everything and anything. It's how kids process the world around them, how they, they learn and how they grow. And they're just so honest about the things that they wonder about. And they just aren't afraid to just come right out and ask, especially just before bedtime, if, you, if anybody else's kids are like mine. Now, when we grow up, I don't think all of those questions go away, do they? It's just that we're a bit more hesitant to ask them. We, keep often, we often keep those questions to ourselves or push them to the back of our minds. But they're still there. Because one of those questions that are often in our hearts, if not on our lips, is the question of suffering. Why is this world so tough? Why is my life so difficult? Why does God allow all of this to happen? Why doesn't he do something about it? Over the past few weeks, we've looked at the, the messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. We've seen him as Emmanuel, as mighty God, as, as the branch, as the gentle servant, the global servant, and the obedient servant. But we've also seen hints of that the Messiah was going to suffer opposition and rejection. And even last week, we saw that he was going to suffer humiliation and brutal violence. And in his fourth and final servant song, this aspect of the, the servant's ministry comes right into focus. As Isaiah tells, him, tells us about the depth of his, the servant's suffering. But this stirs up the question of why? Why should God's perfect servant, his anointed one, his light to the Gentiles... Why should he suffer so terribly? And this song in Isaiah 52 and 53 gives us a wonderful answer. So we're going to read it this morning. It starts in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. And then we go down into verse, chapter 53 as well. So Isaiah 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a, dry, a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid in him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before our shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will, and the Lord, uh, the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. After the suffering of His soul, He will see the light of life, and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give Him a portion among the great, and He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This song, I think we'd all agree, is clearly about the ministry and mission of Jesus. In fact, it's referred to in the New Testament more than any other chapter from the Old Testament. According to some, I haven't counted it myself, it's referred to about 85 times in the New Testament. And there is so much in this song. So much so that this morning we're only scratched the surface of what's in it. It's a passage that we'll want to come back to again and again and again. But as... As you can see probably in your Bible, it's set out in in five stanzas, five kind of verses. And so we're going to just think about how each of these stanzas ask or answer crucial questions about the servant. The first question raised in the song, the first stanza, is about how can suffering and exaltation be linked? This is the enigma, the contradiction, the puzzle about the servant. Because he will be uniquely exalted. Verse 13 of chapter 52 says, He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This threefold exaltation declares that the servant will receive a dignity beyond all others. He will be honoured more than anybody else. Reminds us of what maybe what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus has now ascended into heaven. And he's seated at his Father's right hand. And one day, everyone will acknowledge, have to acknowledge, that he is the Lord. But the seven didn't always experience such a uniquely exalted position. Previously, verse 14 says, there were many who were appalled at him. People were shocked when they saw him. They were astonished. They were repulsed because of him. That's because his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. He was so damaged, so injured, that he hardly looked human. When people saw the state of him, they stepped back in horror because they could hardly believe that a man could look so terrible. And yet still this servant will have a unique impact on this world. Verse 15 says he will sprinkle many nations. It's probably referring to the priestly work of purifying through sprinkling. At this point in in this song, Isaiah doesn't say what the servant will sprinkle. Only that his priestly ministry will purify many, making them fit for God's presence. And as a result, kings will shut their mouths because of him. The leaders of this world, they won't know what to say. They will be dunfounded because of what will be revealed to them about the servant. But how is this possible? How can one person experience such exaltation and such suffering? How can he have such a unique impact on this world, bringing many into relationship with God and silencing even the leaders of this world? Well, this confusion continues into the next section. As Isaiah asked, how can someone look so ordinary and yet be so special? Because the servant had what looked like such an unimpressive birth. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. Maybe in using this picture of, of a shoot and root, Isaiah is, is pointing us back to chapter 11. Maybe you remember when we re- realised that the Messiah is both the root and the shoot of Jesse. But the emphasis here is on his ordinariness. He was born into a time of spiritual dryness. And he was born in an ordinary, earthly setting. Yes, in in a week's time or so, we're going to remember some of the amazing events around the birth of Jesus. In many ways, his birth was ordinary, natural, unspectacular. It's the same about his appearance. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. 
Sometimes we need to set aside maybe what we've, we've got there, this idea of what Jesus looked like. Maybe from pictures or, or from movies that can make him look spectacular as he walked around the streets and towns of Israel. But this passage says he didn't look special. He wasn't especially well built or impressive or handsome. When he started his ministry, many people were offended by him. Because to them he was just an ordinary guy. Remember in Matthew 13? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? What makes him so special? They were saying. And so instead of people rushing to follow him, many people shunned him. He was despised and rejected by men. People dismissed him. People mocked him. He wasn't the kind of leader that they wanted. He didn't come with wealth and prestige and reputation and status. To them, he didn't look Messiah-like. He said he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was someone who experienced pain and sadness and grief. So much so that many people didn't want anything to do with him. So the question is, how could he be the servant? How could he be God's Messiah? If he looked so ordinary. How could he be, as that verse 1 says, the arm of the Lord? The revelation of the power of the Lord when he looked so powerless? Of course, they should know that this is often the case in God's kingdom. As that 1 Samuel 16 and 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In this world where appearances seem to be everything, we need to look beyond the superficial. And remember that God works in ways that are different and higher and greater than mankind does. So we mustn't rely on our ideas about who the servant is or especially about why he suffered. We mustn't rely on our own understanding. Instead we need to listen to God's revelation in this next section, this third section, which is really the heart of this song. Many people thought that when Jesus suffered, He was being punished because he had gone outside of God's will. Verse 4 says this. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. They thought he was being punished because he had blasphemed against God, because he had gone against God's will, because he would sinned. But of course the Bible is clear. Jesus never sinned. Not even once. As God said later in verse 11 of this chapter, He is my righteous 
servant. So why did the Lord's righteous servant suffer? Well, the servant didn't suffer for his own sins, but for ours. Verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Like strange sheep, we've all wandered away from God's ways. We have rejected His reign and rule in our lives. And we've all done our own thing and gone our own way. All of us stand in of ourselves guilty before God. But in His mercy and grace, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. Our wickedness was placed on him and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The servant became our substitute because he was wounded for our rebellion against God. He was crushed to death for the wickedness that was in our hearts. He took the death sentence that should have been ours and he died in our place. And the result of this is that we can be saved. This wonderful phrase in verse 5. By his wounds we are healed. Through faith in the one who died in our place, who suffered instead of us, we can enter into God's salvation. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be set free from guilt. We can have a glorious future. We can be brought right into the very heart of God's family. This is why the servant suffered. On the cross, he was punished by God so that we can have peace with God. But this wasn't something done to the servant. We need to ask the question of how did the servant die? In our next section. Verse 8 says, yes, he was, it was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was arrested and bound and sentenced to death. And this was all completely unjust. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In a sense, the cross was the greatest ever travesty of justice. As the only one who was completely sinless in action and in word was condemned as a criminal and as a rebel. But Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't someone who was caught up in a web of events. Or led against his will to suffer for us. Jesus walked willingly to the cross. 
Verse 7 says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't defend himself before the chief priests or the elders or King Herod or Pilate. He didn't protect himself from the brutality and the violence of the soldiers. Instead, like a lamb, he calmly submitted to all of this. Jesus said about his life, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. He humbled himself. And he accepted the suffering because he knew that it was his father's will. And he knew that it was our only hope. And so the cross is not only a demonstration of the father's love for us. That the father loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. It's also the demonstration of Jesus' love for us. As he laid down his own life for you and for me. Jesus is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But this wasn't the end. Even as he was buried, God was at work. Instead of being consigned to that criminal's grave, the servant would be with the rich in his death. Verse 9 is just one of those puzzles that just doesn't make sense until we see what happened to Jesus. Until it becomes clear that Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, laid Jesus in his own tomb. But of course, Jesus only borrowed it. Because on the third day, the tomb was empty again. As Isaiah declared in verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. The cross is not the end. As we've seen, he will be raised and lifted up. The suffering servant will live again. But do you see what it says in verse 11? He will not just live, but he will also be satisfied. He will be able to look back at all that he had experienced, at all that he had gone through. And he would say it's worth it all. This was because he fulfilled his father's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The cross was always God's plan and purpose for his son. As we saw last week, the son always delighted to do his father's will. And so Jesus would rejoice in John 17 in verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. He was satisfied because he completed his mission from his father. 
But he is also satisfied because his sacrifice has brought in a new family. Through his suffering, he will justify many. Through their faith in Jesus, many people will be declared right with God. They will be clothed in His righteousness. They will be brought into God's family. And so, Jesus will see His offspring. He will see us. Those that He has saved for all eternity. He will be satisfied. He will say that we were worth it all. We were worth the cross. And for all eternity, He will be glorified in the presence of those He has saved. I will give Him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. This explains that puzzle that that Isaiah posed right at the start. As to how the servant can suffer so much, yet be exalted so highly. For all eternity, Jesus, the Son of God, will be glorified because of his willing sacrifice on the cross for our sins. To bring us to God. As Revelation chapter 5 and 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. He is worthy because He was slain. And through His life, He won you and I, and brought us into God's presence. So this is why God's servant had to suffer. His suffering was brutal. It was cruel. It was unjust. And yet through it, God was fulfilling His plan to reveal His love and to secure our salvation. Jesus' death was unique because only He could save us and only He was willing to go through it all for us. And yet I think this whole beautiful chapter about the suffering of the servant also helps us. Also helps us with the question of the suffering that we go through in our life. Not that we will suffer like Jesus does for for the sins of others. Because only Jesus could do that. But it helps us to see the God that we are called to trust in this morning. God has promised that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Even though we can't see it, even though we often don't understand it, 
Even if we, we, we had the choice, we would often choose not, not to accept her. God has promised that in all the situations, in all the circumstances of our lives, the good times and the bad times, the times of rejoicing and the times of suffering, He is at work. Turning around what the enemy means for evil and using it for our good and for His glory. And so as we read this beautiful song, this amazing song about this one, the, the wonderful servant laying down his life for us, it encourages us to trust in our God. Because if God could bring about the greatest of all good, from the greatest of all wrongs, through his son, Can God not be trusted to do the same in our lives? Can we not trust Him that even though as we go through this time of suffering, we can't see it, we can't understand it, but we can trust that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose.